Hello, and welcome to Sounds from the Shadows, a podcast about folklore and fairy tales. I am Emily, and I'm going to be telling you a story. I think I've resolved the sound issue from last time, so I'm back recording on a proper microphone, which feels very nice. I apologise, though, because I now realise my voice itself is sounding a little bit hoarse. This is a combination of it being both spooky season and also the season of the sniffles. Ghosts and ghouls are roaming around, but so too are coughs and colds. And I unfortunately am quite susceptible to catching coughs and colds. A fact probably not helped that I work with small children, who, as we all know, are adorable plague pits. But I doubt you came here to listen to me moan about my health. So without further ado, let's get to the story. This is the tale of Tauntlewald. Long, long ago, and far, far away, there was a place called Tauntlewald, an area of forest surrounded by moorland, where the mist lay deep on the ground, and no man dared step foot. Sometimes there would be whispers and reports of the strange sights seen there, lights floating above the ground, cries in the night, a glimpse of a ruined house from between the trees. One report stated that a peasant farmer, feeling emboldened, one night had crept closer than most. From between the trees he saw the light of a great fire, and gathered round it dozens of women and children. Standing by the fire was a great hag, tending the flames. When she called the fire up, the children would shriek and run, only to slowly come back, drawn to the light by an invisible force. Every now and then, A little old man would appear, with a beard so long that it dragged along the ground. On his back was a great pile of wood, and when he appeared, the women and children would run to him, trying to pull the wood off his back. But a great black cat, a cat as large as a foal, would come and stop them. It was told once that a king had ordered for the haunted forest to be cut down, but the locals knew better than to venture into that cursed place. At last, a brave knight took the quest upon himself and ventured to Tauntaland to cut down the forest. He went out, axe in hand, but when he swung it to cast the first blow, the tree cried out with a shriek that split the sky, and blood ran forth, blood like the wound from a limb that had been hacked off. The knight's hair turned white, and he returned to report what had happened to the king, and there was no more talk of cutting down the forest. And so the haunted forest of Tontaland remained untouched for many, many years. In a village, not far from the haunted forest, there lived a little girl called Elsa. Elsa's mother had died soon after she was born and her father had remarried. Elsa's stepmother was a cruel woman with no love for her stepdaughter. The poor child was lashed by her stepmother's tongue and beaten by her stepmother's hand till she was black and blue, told she would be better off dead and that if she was to dare tell anyone of her stepmother's mistreatment of her, well then she soon would be. One day, Elsa and other children of the village were out plucking wild strawberries. The sun was high in the blue sky, warming the children as they ventured further and further from the village. The children ate their fill of the sweet fruits, tying their lips and hands red in the process. And then when they could eat no more, they began to fill their pockets and baskets and aprons with the beautiful berries. The further they went from the village, 
the more strawberries they seemed to find, and the sweeter and juicier they appeared to be. But one boy noticed how long the shadows had grown, looked in the sky and saw that the sun was near its setting, and then saw truly how far from the village the children had ventured. Run! Run home as fast as you can! he cried. We are nearly in Tontewald! All the children had heard the tales of the haunted forest, and so they ran home as fast as their legs could carry them, leaving behind their fruits and their baskets. All but Elsa. Whatever horrors may lie in Tontewald, they surely cannot be worse than those I would face back at home. And so Elsa, with her pockets full of strawberries, ventured alone into the forest. As she walked through the trees, she looked for the horrors she had heard of, but there was no giant black cat, no witch, no trees that dripped with blood. And then she heard the sound of a tinkling silver bell, and a small black dog ran up to her, barking. The dog ran happily about her, and then began to lick the strawberry juice from her fingers. Elsa had never seen such a beautiful little creature in her life. She knelt down and began to pet and praise the dog, who, pleased with this treatment, rolled onto his back so that she could give him a belly rub. When she looked up, she saw standing before her a woman clad all in silk, the most beautiful woman Elsa had ever seen. Do you like my dog? the woman asked. Yes, replied Elsa. I'm glad you like my dog. And I'm glad you didn't run away when the other children did. I would like you to stay here and be my friend. Would you like that? We could play games all day, gather strawberries, and you could play with my dog any time you liked. The woman clad in silk held out her hand to Elsa, and Elsa took it. The life the strange woman described sounded so nice, and even if it was a lie, Surely it couldn't be worse than going back to live with her stepmother. Come, said the woman in silk. Let us go and meet my mother. If she likes you too, well then you can stay with me. The woman in silk took Elsa by the hand and led her deep into the forest. The little black dog jumping about their feet, its tiny silver bell ringing like a peal of laughter. The woman in silk took Elsa to a beautiful garden in the middle of the forest. Birdsong filled the air, and butterflies as big as birds flitted about the most beautiful flowers Elsa had ever seen. And in the centre of the garden was the most beautiful house. It was both a small cottage and a grand palace at the same time, magnificent and welcoming. And sitting by the door was an old woman. The lady clad in silk ran up to the old woman, crying, Mother, mother, I found her alone in the woods. Please may I keep her as my friend? The old woman beckoned for Elsa to come closer. She looked her up and down. She motioned with her hand, and Elsa made a slow circle, and the old woman nodded approvingly. There is a bruise on your right shoulder, and it runs down your back. Tell me, child, how did you get it? Elsa was very surprised and a little bit frightened, how could the old woman know about the bruise on her back? It was covered by her dress and she told no one. The old woman asked again. Tell me, child, how did you come by that mark? Elsa was frightened to tell, but being so far away from her stepmother and in such a beautiful place, 
she found the courage and said, My father's wife. She says that I would be better off dead, and said that if I told anyone that what she did to me, I would be. The old woman nodded her head. Well, child, fear no more. Daughter, fetch me the salve from the lilac pot. The woman, clad in silk, entered the house and soon came out holding a small lilac-coloured jar. The old woman and the young lady clad in silk took the salve and rubbed it onto every mark on Elsa's body, and as soon as the salve touched her skin, the marks and the pain disappeared. Now, child, said the old woman, my daughter would like you to stay and to be her companion. Would you like that? If you come and live with us, I promise no one will dare raise a hand to you again, and the only words you shall hear will be kind ones. Elsa nodded her head. Yes, 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 she would like to stay, please. Then so it shall be. Daughter, fetch her a new gown. And you, little dog, go find the old man with the beard. Tell him we have a job for him. Soon Elsa was dressed in silk, a miniature copy of the one worn by the young woman. Out from the forest came a little old man. He had a long, long beard that trailed upon the ground, and on his back a great pile of wood. He said not a word, but walked up to the three women, placed down the wood and out from his pocket drew a tape measure. He began to take measurements of Elsa, measuring the length of her arm, the length of her leg, the lengths of her fingers. Every measurement and mention was taken by the old man. He opened her mouth and examined her teeth, he checked her toes, even counted her eyelashes. And then he set to work. The tape measure was replaced by a knife, and he set to work on the wood, carving and whittling away, until slowly, little by little, the pile of wood began to take the form of a human child. While the man worked away, the two women, one old and one young, each took one of Elsa's hands and led her into the garden. There was a fire burning in a pit, and by its side a long table. The old woman took the bell from around the neck of the little black dog, and rung it high in the air. Out from the forest emerged twenty-four women, each dressed in silk like Elsa's companion, and each woman held by the hand a child. Some the same age as Elsa, some small, toddling and waddling along, some just on the brink of adulthood. Each woman and child sat at the long table and the lady in silk took Elsa's hand and led her to a seat, and the two of them also sat. When she was seated at the table, Elsa saw the table was not in fact a table carved of wood, but a great block of granite. The old woman took the silver bell from the little black dog, and stretched it out with her hands till it became a silver staff. She struck the great granite table once, and all the dishes there became filled with food. The women and the children ate of these. And then the old woman struck the table again, and the dishes changed to the second course. And then the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. Each time she struck the table with her silver staff, the dishes would change to the next course. Twelve times she did this, and the women and the children ate. But then she struck the table the thirteenth time. The dishes again changed, but rather than eat the thirteenth course, the women and children having already eaten their fill of the twelve courses preceding it, stood up and left it. 
though her stomach was full, Elsa turned to the lady clad in silk and asked, Why does no one eat the thirteenth dish? Well, said the lady in silk, if we were to eat the thirteenth dish, all our happiness that we know here would come to an end. There is a secret blessing in that food, and an offering too. The world would be a good deal better if greedy men did not strive to possess everything themselves, and instead would leave a little left over. Greed is what brings about all suffering, and as long as you are never greedy, child, you will always be happy here. The lady clad in silk took Elsa back to where the little old man had been working all the time they had been eating. He had carved the most wondrous doll, the most perfect, lifelike, exact replica of Elsa that when she stood before the doll she felt she was standing before a mirror. Every detail was exact and correct, and it would have been impossible for an observer to tell which was made of wood and which was made of flesh. It is almost done, said the old woman. She placed her hand upon the doll's chest and opened a little door that had not seemed to be there before. She took a piece of bread, brought it to her mouth, whispered something to it, and then placed it through this door. Then she took a small snake, similarly brought it to her mouth, gave it an instruction no one else heard, and then placed it into the heart of the doll. She closed the doll's heart door, and then turned to Elsa. There is only one thing left, one thing that you must give the doll. A drop of your blood. Now Elsa became frightened when she heard this. A drop of blood? That sounded like some dark and mysterious evil magic. But the old woman and the lady clad in silk gentled her. Do not worry, child. No fear will come to you. This is just to seal the doll's heart and let it speak in your voice. Elsa offered her finger and it was pricked with a pin. The drop of blood was used to seal up the doll's heart door, and when it was sealed, no one could see where it once had been. The living doll now took the place of Elsa, going to the village to live with her father and stepmother, and Elsa stayed in the beautiful garden and the beautiful house, and lived many years with the lady clad in silk. And though Elsa grew and grew, the lady clad in silk seemed never to age, never to change. Nine years passed and each day was filled with joy and happiness for Elsa. Until at last one day the lady clad in silk came to Elsa with tears in her eyes. Oh, my dearest friend, my sweet companion, I'm afraid the time has come when we must part. Part? cried Elsa. Oh, please, do not send me away. If I've done or said something that has displeased you or your mother, I'm sorry, please tell me what I must do to make amends. The lady clad in silk shook her head. It is not that, my dear. It is that you have grown up. You are no longer a child. And in this place only children, or creatures such as my mother and I, may dwell. But worry not. My mother shall change you to the shape of a bird, will throw you up for the winds to catch you, and they will take you far from this place. There you will be shot down by a prince, but do not worry. You will land on the ground unharmed and take your human form again. The one who shot the arrow will be a prince. And when the prince sees you, he will fall madly in love with you, take you away and marry you, and you shall live happily ever after. And the lady clad in silk took Elsa to her mother 
and her mother did indeed transform her into a bird and throw her up into the air to be caught by the winds and brought to a prince. Back in the village, though, on the night Elsa had entered Tonterland, the doll in her shape had walked back to her father's house to be greeted by her furious stepmother who had slapped the doll in the face, but the doll being made of wood could feel no pain. The doll in Elsa's shape slept in her bed, sat in her seat, ate her food, wore her clothes, and took the abuse from her stepmother. But the doll never shed a tear, never cried out, for the doll could feel no pain. This, though, infuriated the stepmother, and the beatings became crueler and crueler. One day the enraged woman lifted the doll by the throat and began to shake it, wishing to shake the life from it. Instead, she shook open the door in the doll's house. Out came the snake, who bit the cruel woman, and she fell down, dead. When the cruel woman's husband returned, he found his wife lying dead. But of the doll, there was no sign. And I hope you enjoyed that story. While it's not a ghost story, I did think that there were enough uh, spooky elements to include it as a Halloween story, particularly the beginning, the talking about how people perceive the haunted forest. And there are some some definite horror areas in that. The, the tree that bleeds when it's cut is an image that stuck in my mind in particular. Um, I may be pronouncing the name wrong. Taunt Lewald, though I'm pretty certain I've called it a variety of other things. I found this story in the Violet Fairy Tale book by Andrew Lang. It's actually the first story in that collection. I believe it's originally an Estonian tale. And one of the reasons I was drawn to it is, I being an Irish storyteller and mostly based on Irish folklore, I was reminded very much of changeling stories. Changing stories where the fairies, they steal away a human, normally a child, sometimes an adult, and they replace them with something else. Sometimes it's a fairy themselves who's under a glamour to appear like the stolen person, or sometimes it's a fetch, which could be an enchanted object, maybe a piece of wood that's been enchanted to look and act like the person. So to me, when I first came across the story, I thought, oh yeah, this is a changeling story. Uh, the magic doll is a fetch. I like it particularly, though, because it's quite different to a lot of the changing stories I would know, which are told sort of from the perspective of the family whose child is stolen away. Normally it's a, it's a baby and they're dealing with this strange creature. I like it because it's from the point of view of the stolen child who isn't stolen. This is her escape. And the fetch who is sent back to basically be her stand and to be in her place I kind of like the snake that it's got this sort of like almost like booby trap. Like if you treat it bad, well, you'll get what you deserve. And I think that's a nice I know, inverse on a lot of the treatment changelings often get. Because from, from where I am in the world, one of the ways of people would traditionally deal with the changing was basically treat it so badly that the changing would go, nope, can't put up with this. I can't deal with this. I need to go back to the fairies. And that would be the way you would get your stolen child or stolen loved one back. But in this case, if you treat this fetch, this changeling badly, well, you better watch out because it has a snake. I find this idea of the changeling being an escape from an abusive situation quite interesting as well. I haven't 
fully got my thoughts in um, in an expressible form on this yet. But the idea of the changeling, it is certainly something that I've seen and I'm seeing a lot of people now being using as metaphor and exploring. A storyteller friend of mine, Hogan Dice, um, they made a very, very interesting YouTube video, which I will link in the description, about changelings and about how uh, some people are now re-examining changeling stories and documented accounts of alleged changelings as looking at how neurodivergent people may have been treated or had been treated in the past. What does this mean? And the idea of some neurodivergent people reclaiming the idea of being a changeling. I was in Edinburgh over the summer as well at the festival and I saw a play called The Changeling Girl, which also took this idea of an accused changeling being a neurodivergent girl and this folklore superstition basically being used as an excuse for mistreating someone who is different. I've also heard some other creative people I know talking about um, ideas and future projects exploring the theme of the changeling and also themes of neurodivergence. So it seems to be an idea, a theme whose, whose time is coming. It seems to be something that's in the zeitgeist. Or that could just be because I sort of live in a bubble with people who talk about changelings and things and also talk about neurodivergency. But in that realm, I found this changeling story to be quite interesting because it's it's looking at a juxtaposition. It's looking at someone who chooses to be a changeling to escape the abuse they're suffering. And, uh, and that's a bit of a ramble. Uh, so I'm going to leave it there. If you know of any good changeling stories or any stories that could be interpreted as changeling stories, I would love to hear from you. Uh, I can be reached on Twitter and Instagram, links in the description. I'm not always very good at replying in a timely fashion, but I will, I promise, I will eventually reply. I'd also be really interested if anyone knows of any other works or projects exploring the relationship between the changeling and neurodiversity. Uh, I really think this is an idea whose time is coming. It feels, feels like it's of the moment. Again, thank you so much for listening and stay safe.